Man, y'all are awesome. Hey, uh, I'm Steve Hambrick, pastor here at Vintage, and I'm glad that you were here. Let's do this real quick for our offering this morning. You passed baskets down earlier. If you could pass those back down. If you were a first-time guest, welcome. All we ask that you do is simply take that Connect card you filled out and stick it in the basket, and I will shoot you an email this week to say thanks for being here. And... Uh, be great. This and I do connect, do a mark on there just to receive the newsletter. It's the best way to stay connected with everything going on at Vintage. We're in a season. Uh, we're kind of got. Uh, you know, funny. We went through a season of. Um, we had a few announcements, and now we feel like these massive announcements. So as a staff, we're overwhelmed by all of them. Like, oh my gosh, we have so much going on. But it's all great stuff. We feel like God has a lot of things He's doing in the sense of momentum for the fall. Uh, I don't, I don't, I, it's one of those things, you know, that scripture talks about, we, we, we see but dimly in the, in this, in this season, right? And, and then in, in, in Christ we'll see more clearly. But I, in this dimly lit future that God's laid out in front of us, there's something stirring in it. Just a, a, an excitement that I, I, I'm not going to lie. It's like this palpable felt excitement for me of what God is doing. And I, I don't know exactly what it is. I'm just really glad he knows what it is. So we're all good to go. But it's exciting in the things that we know he's stirring and in, in, in not just at vintage, uh, but in, in the surrounding community. Now, I'm going to pick on this is George. I'm going to sorry, I'm embarrassing. This is George. OK, George Rice, one of my best, best friends in the area. He's the pastor at Cedar Crest Church. And Sometimes he takes, he takes Sunday mornings, other guys are uh, preaching, he goes out into local churches just to connect and see what God's doing. And so I'm just, I'm picking on George because here's the deal. George and I sat at Waffle House about two or three weeks ago before he went on this really long, extended, unfair vacation that I couldn't go on. And, um, but we sat there and had this long conversation. And it was simply revolved around this, that we believe as, as pastors and shepherds over the community, that God, uh, over our churches, that God, has linked our hearts with this understanding of his investment in the community. That there's this like-minded reality that God has called Vintage and Cedar Crest and the other churches in the area here not to play church and to show up on Sunday morning, but that we would be a people who are living the other six days of our week, living for Jesus in a powerful and relevant and real way, so that when we live our lives, the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven. How many times have you prayed that prayer, oh, good, our Father who art in heaven, right? You, you say it at night because you don't know what else to pray, right? But in it you prayed that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, and as we sat here at Waffle House, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not really picking, I'm just saying, there was this like-minded reality that we recognize that God is calling the church as a whole, not just Vintage and Cedar Crest, but all these other churches, to bring his kingdom. That that's the only thing that ultimately fulfills his heart's desire. It's the only thing that ultimately fulfills God's heart desire. That his, Jesus prayed, it says, this is how you should pray. That his kingdom, father's kingdom, would come on earth as he's already spoken and believed it to be in heaven. This is his heart's desire. Jesus prayed it and said, this is what I want all of you to pray. And so I want you to recognize, if you're a first-time guest at Vintage again, welcome. But I want you to recognize the goal, the goal is not to play church or just to go to it, but to be it as a living component of the full body of Christ in which vintage is just one part of it. So I'm laying that out there to say, 
you know, just as well as all of us do, what is broken in the world in which we live. You know, even in our own community, the things that just aren't right. As we've said at Waffle House, we, we believe that God wanted to release the gospel, the good news of Jesus, into every single broken place, whether it's the, the heart of a human being or simply some structure that's broken in the context of our community, with poverty being one of the primary, most obvious things, right, that we're always aware of. And so with that being said this morning, as we jump in, I just, George is here, you can say hey to him, shake his hand, high five on the way out. But we have this heart's desire as shepherds that God has called over these churches to say, God, we are, we are taking serious the things that you take serious. Which means that we have to pray into God, we're not going to take serious the things that you don't really take all that serious. And you can figure out what that means for you. All right, so let's jump in this morning. I was to say hey to George. We love George. All right. So now, in the culture in which uh, we live, if we're completely honest with ourselves and with one another, we would have to say that all of us are suckers. Right? We are suckers for a happy ending, aren't we, right? You go, listen, my wife is, a, I'm just going to pick on her for a second. She, if we watch one of those artistic films, that's what we always call them when there's not a happy ending, right? Whenever there's one of those artistic films doesn't have the happy ending, she gets done with the movie and every single time I, I can go ahead and just quote it. You can call me a prophet in this, right? She goes, oh, is that the end? Right? Because she's waiting because Hollywood has trained her, trained me, trained all of us that we love happily ever after stories, right? How many of you ladies, you grew up, I'm not picking on the ladies, but you, you, you grew up with those stories of like the, 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 the prince and the princess. At the very end, it, you just went, oh, when they said, and they lived happily ever after. We love those, right? Like Hollywood, listen, they make billions of dollars every year for one simple reason. They figured out long ago that if they resolve conflict at the end of the story, they make a whole lot more money. Isn't it true, right? I mean, I'm not saying anything you don't know. You you get in the movie and you sit there and you have this like cathartic experience of getting into it. You're like, oh, and your emotions, and you're like, oh, I'm so embarrassed in the embarrassing moments. You're so invested into the good stories, and you're like, oh, my gosh. And the love story is like, oh, my gosh. And you're like, it's so sweet and precious, right? Because you're so engaged in the story. And you're sitting there, not, and if I sit in the movie, and this is, this is like that cynical part of me, I'm like, what cheesy ending are they going to have to resolve this conflict, right? Because it's always happening. You know what I'm talking about. They're sitting there, conflict, 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 and all of a sudden, somehow, supernaturally, in the last five minutes, what do they do? They resolve years of conflict, right? This mother who's hated her daughter, and this daughter's just, just felt the hate. They go, oh my gosh, I love you, and, right? And everything's made better, whatever, right? But we love it. Man, we love conflict. Being resolved. We, we love the, the happy endings and the, and the happily ever after stories. There's something inside of us that just is drawn to that. And we're suckers for it. We've totally engaged it. 
in our culture. Now, last week, last week we looked at Ezra 1. And the way that, and, and the way that I portrayed last week, you could almost say that I painted a picture for you from Ezra chapter 1 of a happy ever after story for the people of God. If you remember, we looked at Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah 29, 11, that familiar, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. But we said that Jeremiah spoke that in the context of the entire nation of Israel sitting there in captivity in Babylon, hating life. Everything. They hated life. They didn't want to be there. They they hated the king. They hated the Babylonians. They hated their surroundings. They hated the place they lived. They hated their houses. They hated everything. They hated the the way the sunset looked in the land. I was making that up, but I'm sure they did. They hated everything about it because they're in captivity, no freedom. They're undone. And then God comes and speaks this message. And he says, in 70 years, through the prophet Jeremiah, this guy who spoke to God, right? In 70 years, I'm going to release you. And then we fast forwarded the 67 years to Ezra chapter 1, where God said, enough is enough. Boom, Cyrus, king of Persia, overtakes Babylon. The first, one of the very first thing that he does, you know what he does? He says, hey, people, these, you Jews who are here, freedom, right? And remember we told the story, it says that he comes, he, really, he grants them freedom. He says, and I want to bless you. Here's my blessing. Go rebuild your temple and rebuild your city. What? Right? He says, oh, it would make it even better. Here is a bunch of silver and gold. Here's a bunch of silver and gold. I want to, basically says, I want to fund your entire building campaign. Right? How awesome would that be, George? Right? Just fund the entire building campaign. The king, right, comes and says, oh, hey, there you go. Like, what? And then he says, oh, yeah, yeah. And everything that's important to your family tradition, primarily your religious artifacts, right? The Ark of the Covenant and everything else. I want to hand it back, everything, everything back to you. And you can take it back and put it in your temple when it's rebuilt. And we said then that the Israelites, a group of them, including the chief priests, all they all went back. They all went back. And we celebrated that. Right? We celebrated this because God was moving on their behalf and he had brought them their happy ending. And we, so we see in chapter 1 that's happening, right? They've been released. See in chapter 2, Ezra names every single one of the, 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 the family and the people who had gone back, right? Gone back from Babylon to go back to this broken and torn down city of Jerusalem. And then in, and in chapter 3, we see the very first thing that they do. I'm not going to read it this morning, but first thing, they begin to rebuild the, the, the altar, so it's a three, it's a three part building campaign, right? The first thing we want to do is rebuild the altar because for them making sacrifices is, which represents their relationship with God, right? They, they build the temple. They see, they build the altar. That's the first part of the building campaign, right? So you see in chapter three, they come back and they begin to, they rebuild the altar. Yes, there's a little bit of anxiety because the enemies are surrounding them, but there's the freedom to do that. And then it says in chapter three that they then begin to rebuild the temple. And so if we if we tell the story, then this is everything that they're expecting as it relates to the movement of God in their life, as it relates to the plans to prosper them and not to harm them, to give them a hope and to give them a future. 
If you had, listen, if you had done a, an exit poll on them after they had voted on what that would look like, what that, what that would mean for them, like, you know how you do that with, when we're doing a voting stuff, you do exit polls to see who they voted for and why, that kind of stuff. If, if they had gone in and voted, hey, what would it look like to define in your life, in your experience, Jeremiah 29-11, a plan to prosper, hope, and a future, what would that look like? My guess, and this is, I mean, this is just a guess on my part, but I would guess that a lot of them would say, well, that would probably, the exit poll, that would look like probably God helping us to rebuild the altar, the temple, and the walls surrounding it because that represents who we are. That would be the home of God and the place that we would come and worship him. That's probably what I would think of as being the fruition of God's promise in Jeremiah 29. And this is what's happening. And so what we're getting at is this. They're sitting, in all, all, and all I'm saying is this. When they're sitting there in the process of rebuilding their altar and rebuilding their temple, I believe that they're sitting there thinking to themselves, yes, this is the answer to the promise. This is, the, this is, this is what I was hoping for that Jeremiah prophesied about. This is our happy, happily ever after, happy ending story. It is exactly what I wanted. But if you did your homework last week, which I know some of you did because some of you were texting me all week about it, Janice, right? You're sitting there reading. You went and read Ezra and you read Nehemiah, right? You went and read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. I told you historically speaking, they're just one book, right? All the way up to the 1500s, they were just one book. Ezra and Nehemiah linked together as one story of this rebuilding project, right? This movement of God coming, the movement of God among the people and coming back and rebuilding their temple. If you continue to read on in Ezra, you realized that it was not a happily ever after story. That this was not some happy ending. We see if you were to go to chapter 4, we'll look at a few of the verses here in a second. If you go to chapter 4, immediately in chapter 1 it says that the enemies of the, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin that came back into Jerusalem, right? The enemies that were surrounding what was the old Jerusalem were sitting out there and they didn't like what was happening. And scripture says that they basically created a, a plot to infiltrate the work. And they came and said, hey, we worship the same God. Why don't you let us come in and help you rebuild? And Zerubbabel, the priest and the other leaders who were alongside of him, they came and said, no, no, no. It was Cyrus who called us to build and God who ultimately spoke that we will rebuild the temple ourselves. It says, verse 3, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. And then look at verse 4. It says this, Then the peoples around them, this is chapter 4 of Ezra. Sorry, I didn't tell you to turn there. Ezra 4, Ezra 4 says, Then the peoples around them, it says the enemies around set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They look at the first five. This is this is amazing. They hired counselors to work against them, the people of God, and to frustrate their plans. Listen, look at how long this is during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
depending on history and what historians say, that's about three or four different kings. And then in Ezra chapter 21, 24, basically what happens in those, pre, those verses in between, they, the, these people, the enemies, send these, this letter to King Artaxerxes and says, hey, this people of God, they, these people over here, these Jews, man, they're, they're bad people. They've created great tension for us back in the day. If you know your history at all, King, you will know you should not encourage them to rebuild. He looks it over, then he says in verse 21 through 24, King, he, he says this, now, in this moment, Issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshay, the secretary and their associates, basically the bad guys, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and listen to this and compelled them by force to stop. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill for 15 to 19 years until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of God. Excuse me, king of Persia. King of Persia. So, what we're seeing here is this very simply put as this. The Israelites, the people of God, specifically a tribe of Judah and a tribe of Benjamin, they've come back, they're moving in the blessing of God, they're moving in this word of God, they're moving in their freedom, they're having this great expression of God's freedom in their life, a great breakthrough moment, a moment of great hope, and all of a sudden, opposition arises. Opposition arises against those who are rebuilding. And we literally see, we literally see in verse 5 that a, a people, there are certain people who their entire job, their, their whole daily existence for almost probably 30 something years was literally, all they did all day long was try to hinder and frustrate the work of God and the rebuilding of the temple. That was their full-time job. They were basically lobbyists going to the king, trying to lobby against the work of those who are rebuilding the temple. That's their full-time job. Talk about, what if you had people, literally, what if we had people, what if George had people at Cedar Crest who every day they were living in opposition, trying to hinder the work of God in our churches and in our community? Or specifically, what if people are living every day of your life trying to hinder the work of God in your life? That was their full-time job. That's what they're experiencing. And finally, we literally see that the, it says in verse 24, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill for basically 15 to 19 years. Can you imagine? Can you imagine he you put yourself in their shoes in the moment? Can you imagine in their story, they, they've waited in captivity for a long time, and God all of a sudden does this miracle, this breakthrough moment, this movement of the work of God. It's a powerful, it's an exciting, it's an overwhelming moment. They are undone in spirit and undone in their hearts. And they're like, this is amazing, right? And they begin to, they begin to rebuild the temple. They begin to, to do all of this stuff. Everything that they thought in their exit, you know, in their, in their exit polling. Yes, this is what we would, this is what we would expect for the, the movement of God, for the blessing of God, for the plans to prosper 
us and not to harm us, to give us a hope in the future. This would be exactly what it is, the rebuilding of the altar, rebuilding of the temple, and the ultimate rebuilding of the wall. Yeah, this would be exactly what it is. They're filled with hope. This is an exciting moment. And then, all, and yes, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden, boom, tragedy hit. Tragedy hits. Opposition arises an obstacle to the very work they knew God had called them to do arose in the moment. I don't know about you, but I would think in this moment that this would be a, a real moment of, of hope. It, at best, suffering, suffering. At worst case scenario, hope being completely broken and completely dashed in the moment, right? The bottom has dropped out. Their plans and their dreams are crushed. In the moment, their happily ever after is gone. I don't know about you, but when reading through this story, there is one other person's story that this reminds me of. It's my story. My story. In my own life, again and again and again, I experience these moments of great breakthrough or great victory or, or great joy or great, the great movement of God. There's some sort of literal moment that the things literally that I've been praying for, there's a breakthrough in the moment and those things happen. I'm experiencing my own Jeremiah 29, 11 moment, the plans that God has for me, the plans to prosper me, and I'm experiencing that, the plans to give me a future, and I'm, I can see it, right? I can see all of these great moments, these moments of my life, whether it's a, 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 my own time of prayer with the Lord, or maybe he was literally coming back from a camp that I was a part of or maybe some conference or just some, some event in my life. Or maybe it's something that happens in my own family. There's, just this, there's this great moment of, of breakthrough, these, these moments where God has done these things. And I could literally sit here and tell you all of these moments of my life of great blessing, of, of, of like these like hallelujah chorus moments, right? I'm like, yes, God, right? This is it. And I go tell people, I've had this breakthrough. I've had this moment with God. Yes, there's been this ecstatic experience. Yes, there's been this quiet reality of God, whatever it may be. And then all of a sudden, just a short period of time of later, sometime a day, sometimes a week, sometimes a month, sometimes a couple of months, all of a sudden I get there and I'm like, I'm like oh, what happened? Can, am I the only one who's ever experienced that in, in my life? Does that remind you of anybody else's story? Does it remind you maybe of your own story? Because it definitely reminds me of my story. I mean, just being completely honest, I'll never forget, I had these great breakthrough moments, and all of a sudden, that like the next day I'd wake up, and all of a sudden this familiar sin would be creeping at my door, and the temptation of it was stronger than it ever had been before. And I'm like, what in the world? Where did that come from? Or I've experienced this in our own, in mine and Randall's marriage that we'll have these moments of great breakthrough and all of a sudden the next day we're just doing this. Do you, I know you never have that happen, right? It's like completely missing and I don't know why, but she's getting really offended and mad at me and she's just, and I'm like, what did I do? And she's just like, you know what you did. I'm like, I really don't. You know, it's like, but there's something that went down and we're like completely missing her or somebody, man, I wake up one day and somebody's just really mean to me. 
I'm like, that hurt my feelings, whatever it may be. Or literally something goes on in my life and it's like, like we're, maybe it's a business deal. Like, yes, God's moving. All of a sudden, boom, we get a, we get a call from the bank or get a call from our partner, whatever it may be about a job. Even I'm like, oh, what happened? There's this, this opposition, this obstacle that, a, that arises in, in my life. And this is exactly what's happened here in the life of Israel. They've had this great moment of, of breakthrough, this great moment of freedom, this great moment and movement of God in this, in this season of their life where, yes, Jeremiah 29, he, Jeremiah was right. Can you believe it? We didn't like him back in the day, but we like him now because we have our plans and a hope and a future and all this stuff. This is awesome. Yeah, we love Jeremiah. He's awesome. He has great word. I received that. Plans and hope for a future. Yes, Jesus, right? And all of a sudden, boom, bottom drops out. Opposition, obstacles arise in our life. The enemy who is surrounding us is trying to infiltrate our ranks, trying to get in and to confuse and to challenge and depress us in the moment. I know you've heard it before, but I'll say it again. First, the Israelites, when they moved back, guess what? They were a threat to the very enemy that surrounded them. That's why the enemy was so uptight. If they weren't a threat, they wouldn't have cared that they were coming back. But they knew history. They knew that, that somehow their God, at least that's what they said, did crazy things for them. They, they, the enemy around them was threatened by them Coming back, and I would say this to each of us this morning. When we in our own lives, as a church and as churches, when we as individuals, as we begin to go after Jesus, as we begin to go, as we begin to get our lives right with Him, to turn things around, and to start walking in the path that we know that we should, when, when we start in our lives deciding to be obedient, when we cry out for more of Him, we begin to pursue Jesus and say, God, we want to go a great, to a greater depth with you and a greater maturity in, with you. In those moments, and hear me in this, in those moments when we begin to go after God, to put our gaze solely on Him, when we stop looking, when we start looking uh, at the things that are serious on the heart of God and begin to give ourselves to those things, then in that moment, we become a threat to the very enemy who surrounds us. And opposition arises. And you start beginning to experience attack. Because in those moments, we become a threat. And let's be honest. I want you all to hear this this morning. If you aren't a threat to the enemy then you are simply wasting your life on a pursuit of insignificance. If you're not living your life in this pursuit of God and giving yourself to the things that are on His heart, the things that are serious to Him about bringing His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, if you're not serious, if you, when you become serious about those things, then you become a threat. And if you're not doing that, then your life is a pursuit of ultimate insignificance. 
And God is speaking into the moment saying, I'm raising up a people who follow me, who are dangerous in their pursuit of me. And yes, who opposition will arise because the enemy is scared of them because they are a threat to him and his work and what he is doing. The history of the people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament, is that when God moves, opposition always arises. Like the book of Exodus. But we actually go back to the garden. Go back to the garden. God creates and the enemy infiltrates. Come to the book of come to Exodus and Moses going before, before Pharaoh and God does his thing and, and, and basically breaks Pharaoh's heart and re, he releases the Israelites. And they have this great moment of freedom. And what happens? They go off, make their way to the Red Sea. They turn around and guess what's happened? Pharaoh changes his mind and the enemy is coming at them. And they begin to, they begin to complain and begin to get scared and overwhelmed. Why? Because they had this great breakthrough moment, great moment of freedom. And then the enemy says, no, 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 and begins to oppose. One of the great stories of, of seeing this real practically is in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's the story of the prophet of God, Elijah, and the prophets, the thousands of Baal. Baal being this opposite God, this idolatry. God, right? The God of his people over here, right? And they have this showdown in 1 Kings 18. They build this altar and, they, and Elijah says, hey, let's do this. Let's cry out to our gods and ask them to consume the sacrifice, right? It's basically this big showdown. It's my God versus your God. Let's see who wins. There's one of me and thousands of you. And Elijah's probably like, hey, sure you're going to win, whatever, right? And so they do this whole thing back and forth. And long story short, God shows up in power, does this amazing work, right? And Elijah basically in the showdown, he's right. And if you want to have like if it's a it's an us versus them type thing, Elijah wins. Just real simply, Elijah wins. Ultimately, God wins. We don't get in the who are those who are standing there physically. Elijah is proven to be right as the worshiper and the prophet of the living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And everyone's aware of it. Why? Because he literally sent fire from heaven and to consume the entire sacrifice and all the water that was lapped up in this little, these little ditches they had built around. It's an amazing movement, right? Elijah has experienced this massive breakthrough of God's power and strength in the moment. He is on cloud nine. He's on top of the mountain. He's had a mountaintop experience like no other. He's like, yes, right? And all of a sudden in chapter 19. He's in this great moment of victory. And the queen Jezebel, this is the queen of the king Ahab. She sends a letter to him and says, I want you to know, I know what you've done and I'm about to kill you. And Elijah goes, ah, freaks out, gets scared and literally runs off and hides in a cave. First Kings 19. Great moment of breakthrough. An obstacle arises in the form of opposition from the queen. He freaks out in fear after this great moment with God and hides in a cave. I can identify with Elijah. I don't know about you. Even the book of Acts. 
book of Acts is a great moment. Acts chapter 1 and 2, Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost. Thousands of people come to Christ. When, when, when Peter gets up and speaks, this, this, this strong proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And they go into Solomon's portico and they begin to worship, right? They begin to hang out as the church. And, says, and they had the favor of the people and people are being added to their number daily. It's this great moment of revival. Whatever words you want to use, a breakthrough of, of birth. I mean, this, it's a, it's a, it's it's the greatest moment of the church, right? It's formation. It's powerful. And on down a couple of chapters later, persecution arises in Jerusalem. And then we have this great historical word called the diaspora, the great dispersion. Basically means people started getting scared and they were splintered off into all the surrounding communities. Why? Because an opposition arose in the city of Jerusalem against the movement of God, the church. Whenever there's a movement of God, the enemy gets threatened, opposition arises. And in that moment, in that moment, the church, the people of God have a choice. You see, the message is simple for us this morning. This side of heaven, there is no such thing as a happily ever after. Now, yes, there is, there is a great moment with Jesus when we give our life to him. And yes, that is a, that is a happy ending of sorts because our, our ending, it, we already know it, right? But as it relates to actual life experience, there's no such thing as a happily ever after where I reach some point with God where all opposition ceases and my life becomes easy. That's what I call a false gospel. and It's preached by many churches in America today. God just wants you to be happy every day of your life. No, God wants us to have joy in Christ and to recognize that every day there's a real enemy who's out to oppose us and to raise obstacles in our lives. And in those moments, we have a responsibility. Think about it. We who were now children of God in relationship with him are called to be overcomers. That's the word for us this morning. The word is an is overcomer. We are called to be overcomers. The Israelites, remember, they're building the temple. They've had a crazy experience with God. They've shockingly been released from captivity. Shockingly been blessed by the king to rebuild the temple. Shockingly given bunches of money to make it happen. And shockingly they received back all the religious artifacts, which are very much a part of the fabric of their family tradition, right? But then opposition arose in the moment. Tragedy, opposition, difficulty, hardship, temptation striking. And they had a choice in the moment. And it's this. One of, one of either of these two things. Either give up or overcome. Either give in and give up or overcome. The Greek word for overcome is nikau. Nikau simply means this. It means to conquer to be victorious or to prevail in the face of obstacles. Leave that up. The, oh, this Nikawa means to conquer. These words make sense to you, at least theoretically, right? To conquer, to be victorious, to prevail in the face 
of obstacles and opposition in our lives. In Romans chapter 12, verse 21, Paul gives us a verse, actually, which Charles Spurgeon referred to as a New Testament proverb. He actually said in one of his messages in the 1800s, he said, listen, he said, or whatever, whenever he left, I think the 1800s, he said, listen, you just need to write this down. You need to quote it all day, every day. It says this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, by the works of the enemy, right? The opposition, the obstacles, but overcome evil with good. This verse gives us the nature of overcoming, doesn't it? Either we get run over by the work of the enemy, we get run over by the opposition, or we run it over. We either get run over or do the running over. Listen, it feels a lot better to do the running over, I'm just saying. And Paul is speaking into the moment saying, listen, people of God, listen, church of Rome, both Gentile and Jew who are living in opposition in the moment together. Listen, don't be overcome by the enemy. Don't be overcome by opposition. Don't even be overcome by one another. But overrun opposition because you are over. Comers. In first in first John four four and in first John five four through five, John begins to paint this picture of this reality, the nature of the reality of who you already are. At least listen, right, just press pause. This morning, this word isn't for overcomers, specifically is for those who have given everything to Jesus and made him Lord of their lives. If you come this morning and you don't know him, you're not in relationship with him, you've never given him everything. If he's not number one in your life, if you've not Lord of everything, then you're not this. But if you are in relationship with Jesus, you've been saved, whatever whatever word you like to use, Right. You've been born again, whatever that is for you, whatever that looks like, the phrase you use. You've given everything to him. He's Lord of your life and turned everything over to him. First John 4, 4 says, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Them is the work of the enemy. You can read that in the first three verses. Go back and read it yourself, right? Overcome them, the work of the enemy, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And then John goes on in verse 5 of chapter 5, it says, For everyone born of God, who's been born again, lover of Jesus, in relationship with him, repented of their sins, right? For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he or she who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. What I want you to see clearly is this, if you were in relationship with Jesus, then past tense, when you gave your life to him, a word that God used to define who you already are in the moment is an overcomer. Not one who gets run over, but who does all the running over. Remember back in the day, for those who are a little bit older, remember the fridge, played for Chicago Bears back in the 80s? Remember that guy, he'd be that big old running back in the back, the backfield, and Jim McMahon would just... John hand the ball to the goal line and fridge would just bowl through every single person and run them over. If you're not old enough to remember him, he was a big fat guy who ran people over. He was an overcomer. He overcame. He, he did the running over. 
This is what he's talking about. And John, and Jesus is saying through John, listen, the nature of those who love Jesus is whether you know it or not, is that you are an overcomer, not by the work of your hands, but simply because of your belief, your commitment and your devotion to Jesus. It's the work that Jesus did in you. It's already been done. We see this picture to continuing on in Ezra in chapter five, God moving, God doing his work and moving in a spirit of overcoming in the lives of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. I love this. If you read in chapter five, verse one, it says that God begins to speak. That's always a good thing, guys. When God begins to speak, it's a good moment. Even if it's conviction, it's good because he knows conviction always leads to life, right? God begins to speak. And who's he speak through? He speaks through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Your homework this week is go read those books, Haggai and Zechariah, right? They're just before Malachi, which is just before Matthew, all right? So go to Psalms and then go right. Go to Haggai and Zechariah. These are the prophets that God raised up, the ones that he spoke through here in Ezra chapter 5, they come in and, and, and simply put, I'm going to make it simple for you, but basically I want you to come in and read it yourself though, right? But he tells the nation, basically God through these prophets speaks to the nation of Israel, speaks to these tribes to not worry about what the leaders have said and what the kings have said. And he wants them to begin rebuilding the temple. And they did. And guess what happened? God spoke into the moment. God gave them word. God gave them direction. They launched off into the direction that God told them to go in obedience to him. And guess what rose up? Opposition. How many of you think that when God speaks to you and tells you to go a direction, he's going to move every obstacle out of your way and you have no opposition? Wake up. That's not, that's not the Bible history. Because when you all of a sudden wake up to the movement of God and begin moving, opposition arises and you have a Romans 12, 21 moment. Do I overcome or do I be overcome? God said I'm an overcomer. I guess I should begin to overcome and not be undone and overwhelmed, right? And so the enemies began to push back in chapter 5. And then in verse 5, it says this in chapter 5. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews And they were not stopped in building the temple until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. So what it means is this opposition arose and the Jews stood up and they said, listen, God told us to build. So shut it. Why don't we're going to keep on We're going to build this. That's what he said. She gave that look, right? She said that. She said, we're going to build because our God told us to build. And Cyrus back in the day said that we should. So we're not going to stop this time. And we're not going to stop until King Darius tells us to stop. So the, these enemies, they went, wrote a letter to King Darius, sent it to him. King Darius went and he searched the archives and he found the letter. He found the letter that Cyrus had written. And he wrote back and he said this. Hey, yes. It's actually true. They're supposed to rebuild this. As a matter of fact, let's give them all the silver and gold that they need today to continue now rebuilding the temple of God. They overcame 
in the midst of the opposition and obstacles that had arisen in their life. God spoke into the moment. They stood there in the conviction of what later would have been Romans 12, 21, which was still true about them, even though it had been written yet. But is that, yes, overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome. Why? Because when God was there moving on their behalf, whether they knew it or not, they were already overcomers. Listen, vintage. We, for those who are living in relationship with Jesus, we are overcomers. But the enemy, evil, whatever it is, opposition, is at every corner, at every place trying to steal our victory. At every breakthrough, when you begin taking steps towards this victory, the enemy begins to lie to you, to steal from you, to cause divisions among you, right? To create this opposition, all of these things in your life. And here's the question. I can't answer this for you this morning, okay? So I apologize. I can't give you all the answers this morning. The question that I need you to ask yourself this morning, and you need to go before God and ask him yourself, okay? So this is part of your homework today. You had to go have a conversation with Jesus and take time to listen, to examine your life. And it's this. There are certain ways that the enemy will oppose you. And usually he does the same thing over and over and over again because he knows what works in your life. And you need to begin to name and highlight where he's moving. Because if you don't, if you don't name it and recognize its source, then you sit there completely hopeless and undone. Going, oh my gosh, my life is just miserable and God doesn't love me because why would this happen? The Israelites for, and I don't really know what was going on, so I'm not going to pass judgment on them. For 15 to 19 years, they didn't do anything except build their own houses and not rebuild the house of God. Because the opposition was moving. What does it look like for you? Where does opposition, is it, is it, is it, God moves and breakthrough happens. Someone says something mean. You're easily offended. Offended bitterness grows up in your heart, and all of a sudden, boom, you can't move. Is it one of those things where you, God moves, and all of a sudden you're overcome by some irrational fear that there's some demon about to attack you again and make your life miserable and steal all the stuff from you? No, that, that's that's the, that's how the work of the enemy he tries to create irrational fear inside of us, or some of these things we. Have extreme loneliness, right? Oh, I'm just so alone. Nobody loves me. We sit there all by ourselves, completely incapable and hopeless in our moment. Maybe some of you sexual temptation, right? This is something that a lot of guys struggle with and some women, right? The sexual temptation is sitting there knocking on our door, say, here I am, right? You're like, oh my gosh, where'd that come from? All of these things. Listen, I would say this for a lot of church people. Some people, the great, some people, the great opposition and work of the enemy is spiritual pride. I'm just so much better than them. In our charismatic world, we look down on the Baptists because we think they're not spirit-filled. What does that mean? Are you serious? That's craziness. But 
We all have the same spirit. He's all empowering us. He's all doing this movement through us. There's no place for spiritual pride because it tears down walls between denominations and between churches in our community. Spiritual pride is the greatest work of the enemy that creates opposition among churches that are supposed to be called one body. So it goes on. What does it look like for you? What does it look like in your life? Where, is he, where does the enemy oppose you? What does it look like? Ultimately, the great work of the enemy, and I think it's his great movement, is to make you think that you are average. Think, make you think that you are average, to make you think that you are weak, because it ultimately keeps you on the sidelines. Right? The enemy of Israel tried to tear their work down because they feared who they would become, and ultimately the enemy feels the same about us. We are average always in our own strength. But in the strength of God and the movement of the Spirit of God, then we all of a sudden become overcomers and we are no longer average anymore, right? And, and, and the enemy knows it. And so the greatest thing he tries to do is to keep you from knowing it. To keep you from actually believing and fleshing out the fact that you are an overcomer. Because he knows who you are. He knows who you are. And he wants to keep you from knowing it. And obstacles and opposition are the ways that he moves, all these lies that he feeds us. And you and we have to be awakened to truth. Saying, Jesus, give us discernment. Graham and I prayed this morning. God, give us a gift of discernment that we can see life through your lens so that we recognize the work of the spirit and the work of the enemy and the work of my flesh. Listen, this is a, a word that you're going to have to chew on and work through. But the place to begin is to sit at the feet of Jesus and take the Proverbs of, of Romans 12, 21 and says, God, I'm not going to be overcome by evil, but I'm going to overcome evil with good. What is Good. Simple. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the ultimate good. It's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Happily ever after, just let it go. Praise God for it coming in heaven. But release it here on earth. And recognize that the greater your devotion to God, and the greater the movement of God in our church and in our lives and in our community, the greater the opposition. And we have a moment, that's the moment we have to embrace this word of being overcomers. Why? Because it's how God defines us. Do you know it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your presence with us. Father, we praise you for your great movement in our lives. And Father, we ask that you would come this morning and speak with a new word into our hearts. God, this reality. Father, you know we pray this Philippians 2 in our time of prayer this morning, God. Saying we pray, this is Paul's prayer, that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that we may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless. For the day of Christ. 
And so, Father, that's what we pray this morning, that we would be awakened this morning. We would know the depths and the insight, Father God, of heart and of our minds, of the power and love of God that has moved in us to make us overcomers already. Father, the great thing about the kingdom is that there is really never a showdown between good and evil, between God and the enemy. There is never a showdown because you already won, because you were already Lord. And this morning we come and say, Jesus, simply awaken us to the understanding of what it means to be an overcomer because of the work that Jesus already did in us. Father, we say yes to you. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.